there, skips and skipperettes from all across the wild and untamed electronic wasteland known only as Internet Land. Welcome back to Tales from the Jungle Cruise. So today is the second half of our chat with skipper Kevin Cavanaugh. Now, Kevin works seasonally in 1975 and 76, but we also go into some non-Disney topics. You know, we, we had a great chat, and I love sitting down with him. It's nice seeing the jungle perspective from a lot of different sets of eyes and from different generations. We're still waiting to get in touch with any skippers who worked earlier than 1975 or any skippers who have worked at Walt Disney World, Tokyo, or Hong Kong. Now, also, we're really interested in finding cast members from the Adventurers Club at Walt Disney World. So if you know of anyone uh, who worked at any of these places, please forward their information to our email at junglecruisecrews at gmail.com. Now, our yearly membership drive is now, and just like NPR, we rely on listener support. Actually, it, it just cost me a bit to run the podcast, and I wanted to let everyone know we have a PayPal link over at junglecruisecrews.podbean.com. Yeah, if you enjoy the show and you want to keep episodes coming twice a month, please feel free to help out with the bandwidth and my travel costs. Uh, we're going to be recording this summer in Bakersfield, Santa Barbara, and potentially Napa Valley. You know, I always appreciate the help. Uh, you guys have been fantastic at supporting the show. Uh, I love doing the show, but I am a struggling photographer, and I want to make sure I don't have to put Tales from the Jungle Cruise on the back burner. So what else is new? Well, when I was gone, Disneyland raised prices, and everyone went into a total outrage about it. Now, I I don't normally get on a soapbox, but I'm actually going to do a little bit of that today. Ever since the 50th anniversary in particular, but definitely since around 1999 or 2000, Disney had gotten really great at selling annual passports, particularly targeted at the local population in Southern California. You know, they needed to do this because there was a lot of underused capacity in the evenings, weekdays, and off-seasons. Now, because of their creative marketing and effectively energizing the local base to show value... Uh, The park gradually became fuller and fuller. 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. closing times became rare, if not gone entirely, and the lines generally became fuller and fuller. Now, the park, by the 50th anniversary, was pretty much full year-round. And in the nine years since then, there just is no off-season. We've talked about that on the podcast a lot. The resort has had to scramble to find refurb times that don't disturb attendance, and there's a huge challenge for families who, more than ever, are spending the day waiting in the lines like it was summer in the middle of March or October or November. Now, because of this and all the money that's come with it, we get amazing attractions like Radiator Springs Racers, Toy Story Mania, uh, the Big Thunder Retrofit. Uh, We see better princess shows and a return to having more live entertainment strolling throughout the park. We see that, at least to my eyes, the food within the park has improved, even if it is a bit more expensive. You know, we have shows like the Mad Tea Party and a commitment to improvements in technology like they did with Star Tours. And hopefully some more new attractions on the horizon. And I really think at some point within the next five years, you're going to see an announcement of a third gate and a new park, or at least an expansion of DCA to the parking lot to the west of it, behind the Paradise Pier Hotel. I know it would kind of seem strange to have Star Wars Land or Marvel Universe being attached to DCA, but it may be one of the few options they have. You know, regardless, the parks are thriving, and attendance is ridiculous, and the resort is expanding. But to the person who's held APs, 
or have been ex-cast members, seeing ticket prices go up to $150 for a one-day park hopper, which, by the way, is a 300% increase within nine years. You know, it seems like betrayal and a personal attack. The unlimited yearly passport is now over $1,000, and the SoCal Pass annual pass has been discontinued. Facebook and Twitter erupted with outrage and indignation like it was some sort of personal attack. There were a lot of people who really saw this year's increases and felt they were different for some reason than, you know, the last nine years of price increases. Look, in part, this is just a supply and demand issue. If they raise ticket prices by 5% and have a 2 to 3% drop in attendance, it's seen as a net win for everyone. The park makes more money, the lines are a little shorter... But the reality is these price increases are not going to impact attendance. The market at this, this point can clearly bear the price increases. I, I actually think we're going to see bigger price increases as time goes on. You know, still, the best deal is for people who come to Southern California with their families and buy a three- to four-day park pass and a hotel, to, uh, hotel stay and who will have a once-in-every-four-or-five-year experience for their kids that they've saved up for years to have. The people who live in SoCal and APs have such a mistaken sense of ownership of the park that in any change is a disaster for them. You know, the furor over the new disabled passes is another way in which change is greeted with a huge antagonistic level of passion, but the implementation is actually fairly well thought out and serves the greater good, and the park continues to make exceptions for people who don't fit the exact mold that those disabled passes serve. Is it perfect? No, but it's a park that's always changing and is never fully done. You know, it's one of the joys of Disneyland and one of the sad realities of a place that's tied into an economic system where it really does make sense for them to raise prices and now limit the number of APs that are sold to try to make sure that the people who go to Disneyland are happy and while they're there spend lots of money. You know, the job of the AP program is nearly over, and that was to return Disneyland to a capacity it couldn't have dreamed of 15 years ago. At some point, the APs could just go away or be sold in limited numbers, or an AP might have to make a reservation to a ticket to go in on a particular day, and they may actually limit attendance of the people who come into the park. And when that happens, even though it may be in the economic best interest for Disney, uh, it's going to create a shitstorm that is going to be horrid but then will be forgotten. And that family from Oklahoma will just come to Disneyland, pay a bit more, and have shorter lines and a wonderful time. Now, does this leave the cast out from the viewpoint that the company is making more money and they're not receiving a benefit? Well, my argument has always been that raising cast pay to $10 an hour or more really would not impact the bottom line or the ticket prices from an economic scale. You know, hell, they did a study that raising Walmart pay to $15 an hour would only bump the price of items within their stores by like one and a quarter, one and a half percent. But there are just as many people who work at Walmart who can afford to only shop there as there are people who work at Disneyland who probably couldn't sometimes afford the tickets to come and play at the place they work. You know, I do think that their pay should be reevaluated, but I feel there's a lot of factors involved in that mix. The unions, skyrocketing workers' comp and insurance issues, and health care. Sure, the magic is made by uh, the people who work there, and I'm always in favor of rewarding the people who do good work. And the Disneyland cast does good work. You know, magical work, one might say. 
So one more thing before I get off my soapbox. Over the last two weeks prior to this episode, I went with my wife on my first trip through the state and national park system of Nevada, Arizona, and Utah. It was my first time to Valley of Fire State Park, Zion, Bryce Canyon National Park, the Kodachrome Valley, Moab Arches, Monument Valley, Sedona, and Phoenix. And when we were doing this, particularly Zion and Bryce Canyon, the thing I was struck by was how damn busy these places all were in early May. Granted, I didn't really realize that was nearly peak season, but all the parking was full. The tour buses and shuttles were packed, and the hiking trail, every hiking trail, was busier than some of the parts of Disneyland. You know, maybe it's time to start raising the prices there as well. Because the experience wasn't that serene, reflective experience I'd heard it was in the past. Frankly, the only thing missing was the fast pass to the best viewing areas or hiking trails. And still, in the long run, Disneyland does have much nicer bathrooms. Thanks again, everyone. Uh, Two more months and we'll hit three years, and maybe we'll have a big party at Trader Sam's. Now, on to the second half of our interview with Kevin Cavanaugh, the Bicentennial Skipper. Especially at night, these always work better at night. You'd say, I'd love to point out some of the rare plants. There's one. Ooh, there's yep. one. Ooh, you know, but nobody ever said, what sort of plant is that? You any, know, and, anytime you have and, the spotlight, you can control the, the focus quite a bit better. Oh, you do. So. Absolutely. Well, and it was, it was cooler at night. Yeah. It looked more like a jungle at night. You know, I mean, people were more relaxed at night. And, and the canopy wasn't... Now, it's, you know, we haven't talked about the physicality of... of the ride during the the sixties and seventies, mm. but from what I understand, the you know that top canopy with all the bamboo wasn't as ominous and and you know overflowing over the top of the the river. It, oh, I see. The yeah. grow over. Well, yeah. it was right at the beginning because there was all the rainforest effect. Right, but then it opened up right after that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, see, and now it seems like it's pretty. Other than the veldt, mm-hmm. you know, it feels canopied over the entire it does. thing. Well, I suppose that helps people feel like they're part yeah. of the attraction and. Um, yeah, no, there were lots of sunny places before. I remember one time um, I got sort of the unbelievable experience of having a boat derail in front of me and a boat derail behind mm-hmm. me. And so the only good thing was I was in the Nile where there at least was some shade. So I was able to park the boat in a shady spot because we were there like 30 minutes yeah. before they were able to take the skiff and get both the boats back on. So we, So I had to come up with, you know, like we talked about, Disney trivia contest and, you know, talk where people were from and, and, you know, questions about Disneyland and, you know, try to keep them from becoming hostile and throwing me overboard from getting stuck in this attraction for 30 minutes. You know, it was the proverbial Gilligan's Island. It was supposed to be a three hour tour. You know, know, and and it's, I I ran into some guests, um, 
God, it, must have been, it, was, it was before the podcast, but they were talking and they were like, yeah, you know, my the first time I went to Disneyland, it was this great experience and it was so amazing. We got stuck on the Jungle Cruise for half an hour and it was the best thing we did the entire day. And then we got evac'd out of this ride. I think anytime that, you know, you have that, that routine that gets broken. Oh, uh, well, it was pleasant just to yeah. sit there. It oh, was yeah. really sat, nice. Sit on the like, captain's crate and, you know. Yeah. We had little stools back then. Yeah. Little, that's all we had. Yeah. This little black stool that was, which I don't think I ever sat on because I was always facing towards them and I wanted to see people in the back and all that kind of stuff. Sure. But, but I think I was mostly bumping my knees against it. But the other thing is the, the actual canopy. The height of the canopy. Was lower than my height. And so yeah. my hats were always like crumpled from bumping up against it. I, I, I have a friend who uh, was a skipper before the. Indiana Jones transition mm-hmm. ninety five, mm-hmm. and he was six 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 seven. Oh, that'd be even worse. But big big yeah. guy. He's a, a sumo wrestler. Oh, and Mark, uh, when they came back from the thing, they said, "You know, we're gonna have to put you somewhere else because yeah. it's just a safety hazard to sure. have your head be four inches above oh, the bar." Yeah. No, he'd be in, he'd be like a yeah. hunchback yeah, by they, the time it was done. They really pulled the the, <clears throat> the height of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it seemed definitely a little shorter when it came back. The good thing they did the back. Loading. I don't know if you remember this, but okay. well, maybe you were after the time. But it, when they had striped canopies, there was a person five eight or, or taller had to duck because they hadn't cut out enough of the roof mm-hmm. to be to be. And you'd always have to just mindlessly, unless a child was going by or someone who was obviously rather short. Yeah, you have to say, "Duck your head, please, duck your head." And I was there once in Christmas, and the Ohio State football team was there. Because there was one of their perks for coming to the Rose Bowl. And these were all these, you know, just guys whose gray jackets barely buttoned. They were so burly. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, bullet heads with the short hair, you know. And three of them in a row getting on the back. And I said, you know, please, Doc, you'll have to watch your head. And they, all three of them just went, wham, and just wham. And, and, and as hard as you can imagine, hit their heads against this. Showed no sign well, that they. Players. I know, but they didn't have helmets on. You know, <laughs> no sign. And then it was one of those things where I, you probably. I don't know what the boats were like when you were there, but if you didn't load the weight evenly, yeah. so there's three guys on this side, and there's twelve people over here on the other side, and the and the, and the people at the back are saying, "Oh, there's room. You know, can I get on?" And I'm saying, well, "Go on the next boat. Well, go on the next boat." You know, yeah. because you couldn't tell them. Anything more in the boat is going to capsize. Well, and you know, with with the American girth being what it is today, yeah. uh, you know, we would we were, and the boats are bigger. You know, we yeah. went from 30, 35 to forty eight is the I think the the that difference. Much bigger. So it's forty eight people are 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 able to get in a boat. Well, the wow. reason, yeah, you know, they cut the boats down to eight boats, but if, with all eight on the river, now you have more people yeah. for less labor. I got to look so more that, carefully when I'm there. So that, that's one of the big things is they're able okay. to do with fewer skippers. Sure, the sure. same number of people that they were able to. Because I remember having twelve boats yeah. and more sometimes. Yeah, and also when you have the weight um, on the boats, there's also I, my theory there's also less derailing because there's more weight. There's on more the stability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's a little too you know too much when you're loading because mm-hmm. you want to not have that gap between the boat and the dock. But. We were always threatened that if you went around a corner and backed off too much on the speed, yep. that was when the yep. rear stanchion was going to come off. And they always said, if a rear one comes off, it's your fault. If the front one comes off, it's equipment. It's the problem. river's fault. Yeah. And so I never derailed. But, man, I remember 
backing up a number of times and having to say, well, you know, you know, you see the same, you know, yeah, hoping it wasn't going to, because that's why I think yeah. I must have gotten stuck between those because the yeah. guy behind it, me. And it's the wave. It's basically, it's, you know, if you're going too fast forward yeah. the wave builds up behind you sure. and when you back back over the wave it lifts the boat up over there but I thought those those engines had to be the toughest thing ever I mean they were running 16 hours oh, a day yeah. and those transmissions were being shifted and shifted and shifted and then you know from full to back oh, yeah. to full to back and well they, they have a whole crew that all they do is, is work on the jungle well boats. they must yeah they must because I remember every so often a boat would be inoperable but it wasn't very often and, yeah. and there were times where I remember every boat we had was going and they were both you know the rides were down to like seven minutes mm-hmm. you know because you, you and that, had to and that was when the and that was when the track was a minute and a half longer really yeah it, when the indiana jones uh oh, reefer, they, they they yeah they cut part of the river off oh. it's, i don't know if you remember the river used to connect to rivers of america right because it used to go under the bridges right. over where pirates is right. and that used to be one run right you know when they when they pulled that up and with Indiana Jones cutting a little bit more of the river off. Okay. Uh, cause I, I don't know if it was pi- when Pirates... Maybe it was when Pirates went in in 64, 65 was when that river got sliced. Okay. was when they got pulled from the Rivers of America. I don't know the date on that one exactly. But yeah. basically, so yeah, in 95 when Indiana Jones went in, that the river got a minute and a half shorter. So the, oh. the hornbills came off the river and they got moved yeah. into the boathouse. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's amazing that we're twenty years now with Indiana Jones almost. Yeah, I know. And see, that was the thing when when I was there. Pirates was always they always had the line that was yeah. coming out as far as Treehouse, and I think you know we were still kind of the sleepier attraction by comparison. Yeah. You know that that didn't. Although, were you there during the time when there was a dual line still, one line to the front and loading and one line to rear? Uh, there's, there's a split now. Okay, because we would always have a line that would just dry up. Everyone would go in the same way, yeah. and you'd have to. Yeah, and in, yeah, and quite often you'd have to have a cast member in that middle ground, yeah. uh, kind of telling people to go down one side yeah. or the other. So because suddenly you'd look and there'd be nobody yeah. there. Well, and we have you know we have that you know the boathouse with the upstairs, and it's still strange to me. Mm-hmm. To I, yeah, I went uh, first first time in a while. We went in March, mm-hmm. and. You know, I don't think about the fact that the first week of March is now spring break. Right, right. When did they start? I mean, yeah, well, there's spring, many spring breaks. I don't know. Spring just it it's, isn't it's the like same six spring weeks as it used to be. Yeah. Um, so you know, we're walking by Jungle at you know ten in the morning, and there's a forty minute wait right. with the full upstairs queue. And I'm like, that that never happens. No, That's silly. We didn't have anything like that. No. Yeah. And I think it is. It's just partially the overflow that you know Jungle is. Well, and and people go to Indiana Jones and they say. Yeah. Well, it's an hour and fifty minutes there. Let's go over here. I think Fast Pass has done a, a, a big part of that too. That the the rides that have a slightly lower um, line will get busier mm-hmm. than because mm-hmm. with Fast Pass you grab the ticket and you go somewhere else. Yeah. So yeah, no, that no, makes sense. It yeah. makes sense. But uh, I mean. We were taught at the time that Adventureland was supposed to be the hard one to find. You know, it was that's what they said. You know, that the entrance was kind of disguised and all. But I think you know nowadays with all the connection from the backside and everything, it's just and, and everyone knows between the internet and oh, yeah. and all the guidebooks and all the hints and things, 
you know, people know the park backwards and forwards they before they ever step a foot in. <clears throat> oh, sure. Because people are so about efficiency, and it, it spoils the magic. Well, I mean, go and just experience it. You yeah. know, don't, don't tie all those things in, so. I just remember back then, Sundays always seemed to be lots and lots of folks from other countries. Yeah. That was big deal on Sundays. And I remember once I had a, a Thai princess mm-hmm. on my boat with her whole entourage and retinue and, and security folks, mm-hmm. I'm sure, and all that sort of stuff. And, and they were perfectly nice and very uh, uh, polite and appreciative. And, yeah. But, I mean, they were always, you'd always see or hear so many languages spoken in line on that day but not on the others. Now I'm sure it's probably no differentiation. Well, and we, we, go, yeah, we go back to that the thing we were talking about where... You know, you get an exposure working at the resort now that you get people coming from all over the world. Sure. But we have a little bit more of that ethnic tolerance. And, you know, we've, oh, yeah. we've been conditioned. I, you know, it must have been a shock for someone mm-hmm. coming out of the Midwest and coming to work at Disneyland and having people come in from India and Thailand sure. and Japan and, yeah. you know, all these countries. I mean, it would, it would have been a shock for most people. Maybe it was a good thing in that way because they were in a controlled environment where everybody yeah. <laughs> else, no, really, everybody else was treating these people as just like any other guest. Yeah. It's like a human zoo. We know that. We well, know yeah, but big, I mean, sometimes the zoo. people who might have in another situation been shown some bias or whatever might have been guided by what everybody else was sure. doing to say, these are just guests. doesn't yeah. matter where they're from. Yeah. You know, it doesn't well, matter at all. It's like you were saying, you know, the whole experience, uh, more so than another summer job, uh, really is a package of things that color your life experience going further out oh, of it that. Does. So now I know you had a couple. Uh, you, you, you're one of those. You're one of those type A people, aren't you? With with uh, the no, no, just a teacher. Just like I oh, said, just a I mean, teacher. Just, just teachers a teacher. have to have. You got to be prepared. Now you, now you said environmental studies. I did. I did um, eleven years of that, teaching kids out of doors in various different places, and then I did three years in a classroom mm-hmm. setting too. So I've sort of had a chance to see it from both sides, both working with a like a different group of kids every 45 minutes and having a group of kids for, for a whole school year as well. Yeah. So um, there was one story that, or a couple of stories that uh, with how many you want to hear, but I did have one very unusual lead and it was a Christmas and the line, it was, it was raining, it was cold, there was no one in line. We had one boat running and there was a rookie in it and we sent him out and then this guy surprised me completely. He was usually a very button-down kind of character. But he said, close the line. I said, okay. So I closed the line. I came back to the dock box. He gave me two guns loaded. He said, come here. We went behind the Tahitian Terrace. We went behind the attraction over to where the canoe is with the skulls right mm-hmm. after the hippo pool. Yep. He said, well, the rookie comes along, you know, does his two shots of the hippos, which we were still doing back then. Comes past that very dark, very darkest area right there. Mm-hmm. And... He says, now. And we stand up and just open up. And just started blazing away. Both of us firing with both guns. And this guy started shooting back. And we went tearing back to unloading. Put the guns away. The whole thing, he comes roaring back. And he goes, there's somebody on the jungle shooting a lovely noise. I said, okay, well, you know, we'll go check. You know, you just stay here. <laughs> you know, we unloaded the boats. And we just went back by the Tishan Terrace and just, you know. So here I am being hypocrite saying, rookie shouldn't be treated badly. But I didn't even, this guy just blindsided me. It was like, I, very, very surprised. But it was a memorable moment to be having a gun battle between the boat and, well, and shadowy figures yeah. behind in the jungle. But uh, well, and you know now it's it's once again it's a different time in in this country it where is. 
<laughs> now, if you do something like that, it, oh, would, it would, you know, terrifying. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and and also, you know, we've got guest services directly behind. Uh, oh, uh, so I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's directly behind the junglets in City Hall. That's right. So I yeah, so if you do anything in the hippo pool, it's more than a couple of shots. Everyone hears it. And they all know something's going on. So, yeah. the other story that I heard, which I did not witness, there was a skipper who was not as well liked as others. Let's say. And his last day was coming. And they made a big deal about his last day and then eventually his last cruise and the loaders made a big deal and all this sort of stuff. And they sent him out. So when he came back to the dock, came back by Trader Sam, somebody threw the switch and sent him down the storage line Mm -hmm. and then sent the switch in the front and sent him back out into the jungle. With the same group of people. With the same group of people. Yeah, of course. Had bypassed all the people, you know, in the way. But they sort of built this whole thing up sort of in a very insincere fashion and then doomed him to try to go around the ride again and come up with something new to say to these people. I I think that's probably the reason they took that front track switch out is to avoid shenanigans like that. So so if you want to get a boat off that, you have to to only take it off. You have to back it up from the the storage. Yeah, I mean, I had to feel that had to be a very well-planned conspiracy because (laughs) it took enough, you know, a lot number of people and... Obviously, supervision, whoever was on... Had to turn a blind eye. You know, had to agree with all that. But I just can't imagine the people in line going, wait a minute, why is that boat going by again? Is this a double loop ride or whatever? But but, um, then there were the people who wanted to kind of go out in a memorable way. One I witnessed, one I didn't. Um, Came around to the elephant pool, and there's a guy sitting, one of the skippers, sitting up on top of the waterfall (laughs) with red bathing trunks and a whistle. And he... Come, we come and decide he blows his whistle and goes, everybody, out of the pool! You know, and... <laughs> and he was, he was planning to leave, and that was his farewell. Uh, but the one I heard about was that somebody somehow managed to tie a rope right before Schweitzer Falls. And as the boats would go by, would swing back and forth from one side to the other across in front of the boat. And this worked until the first skipper who'd seen it came around for the second time, knew this guy was going to do it, and shot at him as he passed, causing him to let go of the rope and fall in the river. And, you know, how deep, whatever, three yeah, feet or four yeah. feet or whatever it is, and then have to walk out covered in green slime. But um, that, that was always, I never went in the water. I only know one person who, who did. Well, Jeff Rhodes said he fell in, and then you were podcast. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, as far as during the time I was there. Okay. I know other people other went people, in. Okay. But I, I was... And I'm not a germaphobe, but that water... Well, it was so shallow and it was so opaque, you had to think, what's yeah. in here to make water this shallow impossible to see through? Well, they yeah, they put, you know, the big tubs of colorant, the big, yeah. you know, bins of it. And it, uh, but the amount of duck feces oh, and, yeah. you know, everything else, it's, you know... Well, did you post the thing about the, the Tokyo Disney, the video of the Tokyo? Yeah, Disney? yeah. See, yeah. that just looked wrong to me. I mean, the watercolor was, was like... It looked like emerald or something yeah. like that. I yeah, mean, it, was a, it was a much bluer, blue, blue-green Well, it just stuff. looked like no color ever really found in nature. Yeah. It looked like a flower or something like that. And I kept thinking, is this radioactive? Or yeah, something? no, it's, uh, there's a couple really... I think Tokyo's got um, 
Uh, really? Yeah, was it Tokyo or Hong Kong? Oh, I don't remember. It was one of the Asian ones. I forgot. I, I think it was Hong Kong. The one with the big finish at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, this... that, that's Hong Kong. With, okay. the, uh, with the, the Hong Kong skippers, I, I found out from one of my other skips. They have to know their spiel in three languages. You put that on the thing. Thought, yeah, they have. Oh. They have to know the. I think Kevin uh, <clears throat> skipper Kevin Lively uh, posted. They have, they have to know it yeah. in English, uh, Cantonese, and uh, Mandarin. Mandarin, right? Which that's that's a hell of a task to. <laughs> And you have to think they're making more than eight bucks an hour. I hope so. If they know all three languages and have to pull that off, so just for reference, my princely salary in nineteen seventy five was two ten an hour. Wow. Yeah. Made eighty four dollars a week. That was probably a decent uh, decent. Well, it was minimum job. wage. Yeah, it was minimum, minimum wage. wage in nineteen seventy five. Yep. So in nineteen seventy six it was two forty an hour. Wow, big so bump. It was it was but that was just because minimum wage went up, you know. It was yeah. like, as somebody pointed out, minimum wage is just their way of saying, if I could pay you less, I would. But the government won't let me. You know, so just just a perspective. I don't know that was the other thing, of course, is the permanent part-time folks were not getting 210 an hour, you know. And yeah. so there, there was definitely a sense of us and them. Not not overt, but it was mm-hmm. there. You sure. Know? You know, and, and, and we were... You know, we were the ones who were sent out for parade duty and all that kind of stuff. But like I say, my experience on parade duty, even though it was out in the sun and even though it was hard to get people to sit down, the woman who supervised me was this nice lady from Frontierland. I don't, I don't know what she did, really. She wore one of those Frontierland costumes. But she was so much easier to deal with than the guy I had at the Jungle Cruise that I looked forward, you know, to going and out there and, and being with her for two hours because she was... You know, very thoughtful and compassionate, never got angry, never yelled, mm-hmm. you know, didn't do any of that stuff. It was easy to work for her. Yep. You know, and even though the job of getting adults to sit on blazing hot pavement was never easy, but that was another thing. I mean, like you talked about skills that transferred. If you can get, if you can get people without yelling at them to, to act against their best interests and sit down on a hot sidewalk just because you've asked them to do it, that's a skill. <laughs> That really is a skill that I know I've used at other times, right? Well, yeah, em- empathy, coercion, you know. Yeah, but I mean, you couldn't use coercion because you told you get mad, and it wouldn't yeah. work anyway. You had to convince them that they wanted to sit down, you right. know, <laughs> that that was what was best. But um, yeah, it was an interesting situation. It's funny because I had to look up what the parade was. You'd think I'd remember a parade I saw every day all summer, <laughs> but it was actually America on Parade. It was the preparation for the yeah for the 1976 bicentennial thing. Yep. But what I no. do remember is there was a dwarf who we would have to sit right at the end of this crossing and hold the guests until it was safe to let a group of them cross. And there was a dwarf who stepped on my toes mm-hmm. every time he or she went by. I don't know which one. I never, you never know who was in those and, and, costumes. And, and just to be clear, we're talking about Snow White's dwarf. Yes. Not, not a person. A dwarf who... in the parade, okay. in costume. I, I don't I... wish to... I, I thought maybe you had you no, know, no, no, a little no. person who was no, a little no, person no, no. who was coming after no, you. This was one of the seven. Okay, one of the immortal seven. Stompy, I think, with was the big the big toes, feet, yeah. the big feet with the, with the taps on them. They hurt. I yeah. mean, they I, like... I, I think that was Stampy. I think is the name of that dwarf. He was oh. one of the seven. If if I remember my my Disney movies uh, well, Stampy the dwarf. He was the yeah. He was grumpy in my mind, but anyway, he was <laughs> well. That... He was like big footy or something like that. But anyway, minor detail. Um, so yeah, so what was the what was the the bicentennial like? I mean, that was a big hullabaloo. They had Main Street decorated for the whole year with yeah. the red, white, and blue. We got special name tags. Yeah, I had mine. Dig it out and show it to you. Um, yeah, there was a tremendous amount of of 
hype. I don't think in terms of working on the cruise. I mean, I know that the no, no, just the time, park in general. Yeah, I mean, everywhere you went, you were reminded of it. Even after July Fourth, you know, mm-hmm. it was still. Um, yeah, it was. It was, it was a, like the whole year of celebration. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, because I mean, it was. It was the whole year of that for the country. I mean, it was a really big deal. Yeah. Um, people were talking about it up to July, but it was all the way through that year. Yeah. And I think, you know, there was the sense, as a historian, the whole Vietnam period was so grindingly negative. I mean, there was never any good news. Mm-hmm. And that ended in mid-1973. And I think there was a sense of wanting to have to celebrate something that was less conflicted yeah you know and to Where go back every, everyone can get behind right it. to go back to this time of of the revolution and the declaration of independence and all this sort of stuff and to to you know look at that as a common heritage and as something that was not so full of disagreement and yeah. argument politics. And, and politics and and uh you know, so I think there was, and Disney would be the kind of organization that would embrace that. Yeah. You know, they would really embrace that. Well, I remember, I mean, I, I, I won't say this with a malicious tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in elementary school in 76. No, that's fine. <laughs> I, I <laughs> so, my white hair. Yes. Um, yeah, mine, I'm earning mine every day now. Um, but I was, I was, you know, in first grade, I want to say first or second grade, but I, I remember clearly how big of a deal it was. Uh, the bicentennial quarters. Oh yeah. It was, you know, there was this giant unveiling of them and everyone was like Mm -hmm. showing them off. And I'm like, that, that isn't what a quarter looks like. I know what a quarter (laughs) looks like. You know, I would steal them from my mom's purse. I know what they look like. Um, but yeah, it was a huge, um, it was a, I don't think there's been anything like it, you know. No. In, in well, there was no con- nobody seemed to disagree with it. Yeah, you know, I mean, that everybody yeah, how, seemed how, to either yeah, how not you... have an opinion or embrace it. Yeah, it wasn't. It didn't. It didn't seem to engender controversy, and that was a. It's for someone more youthful like yourself. It's hard, maybe perhaps, to imagine a time when every news report every day showed the division. Within the country. See, and I, know, I, I, and dis, I disagree with you because I have seen Fox News. Well, uh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> and I think that's what they do. That, well, that's, that's, that is, but see, there, there's a difference between FAUX News, which is what they're doing. They're, they're, they're contriving <laughs> a division yes. to sell tires. But, but this was a. This was a really serious division. No, no. I, I, I just that, couldn't. I can't let it get. No, no, no. Pass. It's true. I mean, it's true. They are. They want people to believe that the country is about to be ripped apart. Absolutely. You know that is their. When, when in reality, with with you know, there was a, a metric study. I'll, I'll find the link on it, but mm-hmm. uh, it basically says that we are living culturally in the world at the best time to ever be alive, and things are really only looking better, with the exception of. Uh, the environment mm-hmm. and uh, slavery, which they're saying is actually yes. the yes. highest it's been in 50 years. Right. Um, no, but, there's a good case to be made for that. But, you know, as far as uh, number of people who are literate. Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, so, so there's these great Healthcare things. Health care for a lot of folks, not certainly for yeah. everybody. But, yeah. And better food supply, better water supply. It, yeah, it's, sure. it's just no, this it's huge true. thing. And, you know, we, we lose track of how great things are because, you know, we do get this political derisiveness. But I, you know, I, uh, my dad served in Vietnam. Did he? Well, um, then you know very well. And if he's yeah, well, when, talked we, to yeah, we've talked about mm-hmm. it in depth, and uh, you know, so I have a little context for it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's difficult. 
I think, going into a point where um, really less than half the population remembers what it was like. Well, and you, a lot you know, of people seem to remember it very oddly. I don't know. I mean, when I hear people talk sometimes about it, I think... That wasn't what That you, wasn't what I remember, yeah. you know, I mean, and, but of course everybody's experienced in different parts of the country, different things are different in that way, but, but I was 16 when the draft was repealed. Yeah. And I had a very clear sense, I'd studied history, and I knew how wars had progressed prior to this, and as far as I can tell, at the age of 16, nobody knew what they were trying to do in that war. I mean, it was... It was, seemed like they were making it up as they went along. Mm-hmm. And now that I've studied it, they were in a lot of ways. And um, so I had a really conflicted sense. My father was World War II, is a World War II veteran, so I thank God. Um, but, I mean, he had a, this sense, and we had a lot of disagreements because he was referencing his own personal experience of being a part of that experience. And I was saying, this isn't the same thing. No. You know, this is a, just because it's the United States at war is... It's not, so, not so, at all the same. So, someone told me, and I, I think this is the, the best. I'm, I, I may not leave. I, this is, you know, off on a tangent. That's fine. But um, someone told me one time, I think it's, it's the best way of describing what happened, is that um, it was a reactionary war, that we went in as a reaction oh, to absolutely. something versus absolutely. having a, a clear point of what we were doing. Sure. And, you know, I, I really see that... Um, and we were shoring up what the French yeah. had not been able to accomplish. Yeah. We, we thought we, we would step in. We, we were going into... It was an undiscovered ter- you know, yeah. country for us. We, we had never been in that kind of situation. And it's the same issue that we're running into now with sure. what we have to deal with in the Middle East. Right. We don't know what the hell we're doing in, in Afghanistan. Well, and we, as a historian, you know, I can't help noticing over and over again that if you blunder into a situation and you don't know what's going on before, yeah. you don't recognize the fact that... You're not even sure which side is which. You don't even understand what has taken place. We continue to repeat and, our mistakes. And, you know, to understand the majority of, of the, the Middle East issues, mm-hmm. I just tell people, go watch Lawrence of Arabia. Well, that's a part of it. Because if you, if you watch that movie, you'll probably have a better understanding of what's going on in the, in yeah. the, the root of why the Middle East is so much of a problem. And why we can't, in a Western viewpoint, look at it and change it. But well, people say, oh, we have to maintain the integrity of Iraq. I say, Iraq was created in 1921 for British petroleum yeah. interests. Yeah. It's not like it's, the it's Persian a, Empire that no, goes back. It's an artificial yeah. construct that we're trying to... Right. We've imposed this on these individuals and then said, now you have to live within these... Boundaries. And then when it breaks down, we're surprised and we, we try to reimpose something new and... Yeah. You know, and then you throw the religious aspect into the, the mix, which just, you know, confuses and makes No, those are all worse. absolutely true. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, getting it back to slightly sure, sure, more... Sure, sure, uh, sure. sure, sure. Um, if you get a chance, uh, have you been up to the Disney Family Museum? No, where's that? Uh, it's in San Francisco at the Presidio. Okay. okay. And it was uh, Diane Disney Miller, who mm-hmm. just recently passed away a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, she started a foundation that basically preserved the Disney family's viewpoint of things okay. and all of Walt's memorabilia, all the personal oh, things. That's got to be a lot. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing because it really is, you walk in the doors and it starts with Walt's life mm-hmm. and you walk out the exit doors and it ends right as Walt passes away. Okay. And so it's really his journey in his sure. life. It's this beautiful museum. One of the really interesting things is um, what was happening in World War II with mm-hmm. with. 
with Walt and his his working with the army, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was doing animation for that, mm-hmm. the the anti-German animation right. that they had done. Dr. Uh, Seuss was doing it too. Yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting seeing that, you know, that aspect, and then going into the. Um, the early '60s with the uh, McCarthy hearings, mm-hmm. and you know '50s, '50s with McCarthy. McCarthy hearings. Yeah. So it's really interesting seeing that whole you know shift of how Walt was mm-hmm. uh, a part of a bigger world history than what we think the Disney company is. It, sure. it, it's funny; it really is layers. I mean, oh, yeah. there's there's really this amazing. You can go to Disneyland and you can see the Disney thing, but the the deeper you dig, you look at the cultural relevance and significance, and you know it it is. Um, it's a little bit of a shifting sand mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, maybe all the things that we thought, you know, I think that one of the great examples is that they airbrush all the cigarettes out of Walt's hands right. when he was notoriously <clears throat> a very heavy smoker. Oh, yeah. so. um, well, I mean, his image, you know, has certainly been fought over and sanitized. And, of course, we always thought it was ironic that the guy who had a mustache wouldn't let any of us have mustaches. <laughs> it was yeah. like... How exactly? Again, it was that same thing of having a different yeah, it, standard. It is so for, strange to go in the park and see cast members with beards now. Well, yeah. I mean, but, it, I mean it's no, it, it's, it's where the not culture. 1964 anymore. No, no, no. And no. It's where the culture, but it's still kind of strange. It was a, yeah. it was almost kind of a nice little time capsule mm-hmm. in in certain ways of some positive aspects of that and it was nice uh, maybe they couldn't find enough people who were willing to uh, I, my argument it was probably I think the union was probably involved in part of that but I, I don't know I have, I have no reference point for yeah. why it was they changed that um, yeah we tell a great story with uh, one of the cast members about women being having to wear nylons oh. since Sue, Sue Barnaby's okay. episode I have to listen to that yeah so that was that's interesting the uh, you know all of the issues that come from working in 110 degree weather in oh, in pantyhose. So I just remember feeling like I was, my shoes had melted into yeah. the, the the dock. Well, and times. yeah, and the jungle. You know, now it's if it's 100 degrees out, it's 120 in the shade in the jungle because yeah. it just holds the heat. It's it a does. giant reflective water pool of of hot sweat, earth sweat. That's but I noticed it was it was deemed a. An ecosystem of something. I mean, it got some kind of award. The jungle got an award for, for, for I don't know, it was a gardening thing or whether it was something for yeah. nature, but it was recognized as a... Oh, it's an amazing, I mean... You know, e- for all, for a sustained ecosystem. Yeah, it's crazy with all the chemicals they pump in the water that everything, you know, lives as well. But it's it's very green and lush because all the coloring just goes right into the trees. Yeah, I suppose so, that's all. And then there's the spiders that are... Yes, I do remember the Gigantic spiders. spiders. I do remember the spiders. So, uh, you know, we um, always like bouncing off. And then you sure, probably no, no, have no, more no, on your no, list. No, no, but, no. Um, you know, at the time, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, Disney always had its its people coming through as far as celebrities. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I know Kurt Russell was active in the studio at that mm-hmm. time. And did, did you... During your your uh, seasonal time, did you get to have any great experiences with anyone? Did you get to meet anyone who sticks with you? I would think had anyone come, they would have. I hate to say this, the permanent part time people would have gone. <laughs> they would have they snagged would have, the. Yeah, exactly. Like I say, the Thai princess, whose name I did not know and do not, was the one person I can remember. Um, that uh, I, I remember, I I knew the woman who was the. Um, we were in high school together. I think her name was Nancy Anglo. She was she was the yes. tour guide ambassador to the world yep. type of thing. She was traveling all over the place, and and she was a perfect. She was those. She'd be the person who'd be like the rose queen or whatever. Mm-hmm. She had that 
kind of personality of being very, very uh, dynamic and, and uh, very engaging. So that was, but, you know, when those kinds of folks would show up, you know, we were kind of like put in the broom, in the broom <laughs> closet and the... Shuffle, and the, shuffle the, off to the people that they knew were not going to ad-lib the jokes. Yeah, or, or, you know, the people who quote-unquote more deserved it because they, yeah. you know, they were the permanent employees and we weren't, you know. And so, um, no, I, I once worked in a bookstore and waited on Dustin Hoffman when he was looking for a book on Gandhi because I didn't know at the time but he was being considered for the role, the part that eventually went to... Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley, but anyway... God, I, could ne- I, I couldn't imagine Dustin Hoffman's Gandhi. Well, I mean, obviously the people couldn't <laughs> either because they didn't cast him, but, but no, I mean, I don't recall... Um, nothing that stands Nothing that, that, if it did, it's, you yeah. know, it, it's been wiped away in the sands of time. So what else but, is on your list? I know you, you, well, you compiled some other thoughts. What else um, is on your... I think I've gotten most of it that, uh, yeah, that it's halftime. Um, like I say, I think, I think the, I would have had a greater sense of camaraderie, I think, if I had been, if I had been spending my evenings listening to Cal Basie, that was more interesting to me. I, I, I don't, I don't fault you for that yeah. in any way, shape or form. I, no, no, I just would have more stories to but tell. But what a, what a great chance to hear oh, some of the, the greatest legends of once live in a jazz. Lifetime. Yeah. Once in a lifetime. And for free. Yeah. I mean, with 210 an hour, I couldn't afford to go to Hollywood and listen at a jazz club. Yeah. But no, like I said, it was like a master class and, yeah. and to be able to watch them from such a close distance and see the way they interacted. And it was, it was, a, it was a, one of the top five privileges of my life in yeah. terms of yeah. things to do with the arts. It was absolutely at the top. Of the yeah, and it's, it's one of the things that I think really has gotten lost as far as the live music in the park. It isn't, it isn't what it used to be. No, well, I mean, they, they, they I think, have leaned so much towards you know, razzle-dazzle attractions. And I mean, yeah. certainly other parks putting in razzle-dazzle attractions has had an influence. It's got to be a competitive market. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I mean, I think that was a huge part of going there once upon a time. And now they kind of want everything else to carry it. Yeah. And, well, and you know, and, and in reality, it's a lot easier to, you know, bring an eight piece in. It is. It's a lot easier to do that than build a roller coaster. Sure. So I mean, there are things, and you know, and it's uh, God, most of the most of the guys who were in New Orleans Square playing jazz during oh. the seventies. A lot of them have passed away oh, recently. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, there were some legends. There. Yeah, there were some apps. And for those guys, it was a great gig because it was predictable. Yep. it was regular. You got you yep. know you weren't working until midnight. You weren't working in smoke. You know, um, Teddy Wilson played there for such a long time, and others, and. I don't think the people who were sitting there eating knew who they were listening to. Yeah, most they didn't people realize didn't, yeah. that these guys were legends. You know, they probably thought they were just just musicians. You know, <laughs> they were there. And as a one other anecdote, I came back in the summer of 1980 because I was in the relief quartet for the Dapper Dance, mm-hmm. and so I got to see that experience. And we we did two days a week. The regular group did five days a week. Sure. And and that was an interesting thing because we. You know, we did 45 minutes on and 15 minutes off every hour. And we started our set with singing with the, uh, the Disneyland band at Carnation Gardens. And it was such a thrill to me to be singing on the stage where I had sat and watched Count Basie and Woody Herman mm-hmm. and all those guys to actually be on that stage, even though there were 20 people out there watching. You know, it wasn't a big deal. But that was a cool thing. And to get a chance to, to be in the parade rather than be the crossing guard, but to ride the bicycle boat for four in the parade. Yeah. That was a that was a wonderful opportunity as well. They um they're doing really neat things with the barbershop quartet now, mm-hmm. and I you know at the 
you know, ten years ago, I was just kind of like, yeah, it's one of those things, and mm-hmm. it's it's. But they're they're doing um, arrangements of Disney songs, right. which I think is great. Yeah. But they're even doing some arrangements of just general popular music, and yeah. it's really cool because it's it definitely gives. Uh, for people who are coming who are maybe six or seven or eight years old mm-hmm. who never have heard Barbershop before, right. you know, and who didn't have the variety shows when they sure. were growing up and the sure. Muppet Show yeah. and all those things where, you know, where you could have had Barbershop. You know, uh, Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show does a Barbershop, oh, yeah. a barbershop well, sketch where they... He's a very talented oh, musician. Oh, yeah, hugely <laughs> talented. Incredibly talented. He plays it down. But he's very talented. No, I mean, well, well, and the Roots are just one well, of the best bands. Oh, there's yeah. nothing, uh, yeah. One of the things I think that ties into that is there's maybe you're already aware there's been a renaissance in acapella singing. I mean, when when I was in college, there was one acapella group. Now my college has like ten, and I mean, men and women. Well, and give you know, credit give credit to YouTube. Well, yeah. I mean, I I really think it's the exposure of sure. what happens is you get one or two incredibly talented people who go out there and do something different, and, mm-hmm. and it catches fire because sure. people realize there's such great validity to it. Yeah, there was. Um, I I got into acapella listening with a group called the Bobs. Oh, the Bobs are legendary, and they're fantastic. Oh, and they would amazing. do acapella arrangements. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I still remember their version of Psycho Killer. Oh, yeah. And you know, no, they were they were pioneers. Yeah. In terms of, um, uh, rockapella was yeah. another one. They were pushing the boundaries. It wasn't taking the same things, but then going way beyond yeah. it. And I think you know when I was there, we were still singing Coney Island Baby, and that was fine. And but we were wearing the you know, day glow polyester Stripey outfits. Pants and you know, we were always afraid of getting near a, a light bulb for fear we'd melt and catch fire. And all well, that yeah, the great stuff. thing is, is that the red, the guy who wore the red one could just lay on top of the canopies of the jungle cruise <laughs> and blend in. And blend in. It was camouflage, exactly. So. It was funny because I went from wearing, from working under stripes to wearing them. You know, yeah. I mean, it was, but it was uh, that was the summer of 1980, which was you know the 25th anniversary, yeah. and so that was a fun year to be there too because they did a lot of yeah, playing that up. Well, and just think, you know, now we only just have to wait for um, uh, 2026. We can have the 200 <laughs> 250th anniversary of the U.S. There and then, you go. Yeah, we'll, we'll all get back together on the same page. The bicentennial that just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I can uh, see the commemorative plate now yeah, from yeah, the Franklin the Mint. No, it's it, it's it's been it was an interesting time, and I'm very grateful to have had the window that I did uh, into that. And it, you know, there were certainly times when I thought this is insane for two ten an hour, but there were other times where I just thought it was a great privilege. Yeah. And I I've got to ask, what was the the guest reaction to the, on the barbershop quartet side? Was it was it always very welcoming? Oh yeah, get, we would attract 80, people. Because eighty eighty, mm. you know, there was still a level where I I have a perception that younger people still had manners. Um, that might be a little bit sugarcoating, but maybe more than yeah. But I don't think the people the 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 people we tended to attract were were older folks and kids. Teenagers, not so much. You yeah. know, I mean, we were not doing the sound that they wanted to hear, but but um, but teenagers. I mean, but older folks and kids. We did a lot of shtick, mm-hmm. and so the kids would be attracted by that. And we played these crazy organ chimes, which were which looked like nothing else. I mean, they looked like something you found in a trash heap or something. Mm-hmm. And then you know the outlandish costumes. We looked like something out of out of an animated movie. You know, or something out of, out of like Mary that. Poppins. Yeah, out of Mary Poppins, and and then there were always the hardcore um, barbershop singers, 
and they always wanted to sing with us. And we would do that, you know. And some of them were really good, and some of them were not so good. But it didn't matter, <laughs> you know, because they were having the thrill of their life of getting to sing with the Dapper Dance. And, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was like a shared, it was like the secret handshake, you know, that they, yeah. and they always wanted to sing Coming Out of the Baby or a couple other songs. And, and it was fine. And, you know, we were encouraged mm-hmm. to say, you know, to encourage people to come and, you know, have that interactive thing that wasn't often, you know, you couldn't say to somebody in the Jungle Cruise, here, you take the mic and, you know, you take us, you know, tell us some good jokes about, we didn't, couldn't do that. So yeah. this was an opportunity where you really could, I mean, you know, I'm not saying like 300 people stop to listen, but 30 or 40 would, would different places we would stop. We would always do something. There was a very famous guy who was doing the piano at what was used to be called Coke Corner at the end of the yeah. street on the left. His name was Rod. I forgot. Uh, Rod, Rod was there up, in, yeah. up until a few years ago. Well, he was. He'd been there before yeah. me and way after. And he was a phenomenal. Oh yeah, he's player. You know, and, and we would sing with him, and we'd sing with the Disney band, and we'd sing in what was that hospitality center on the other side of the street, yeah. and we'd wander up and down. Of course, we couldn't go a lot of places. Yeah, you're kind of stuck on Main Street. But then we would ride our bike in the parade, mm-hmm. and then and that was kind of fun because. We get a little bit of a break waiting for the parade and then riding. We didn't sing in the parade because it was pointless. Right. It was all the pipe down. Oh, you're in costume, so you might. We were in costume. We wave and do all that kind of stuff. And then we got to ride the bike back. And, yeah, you know, a, and I it think it was a nice break. It, it is an iconic kind of touchstone that kind of grounds the Main Street experience oh, yeah. into a particular time. But now they get to wear clothes that look like the people who are on Main Street. You know, they're not they're all matched. You know, one yeah. guy looks like a barber, one guy looks like a tailor, one guy looks like a. Uh, you know, at least yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, I've seen them that way, and I've also seen them in the stripes. Have you? I have okay. still seen the stripes okay. on it. So I think it's different different groups. Well, maybe they just want to have some variety. But yeah. the last time I saw them, they were very good. I was very impressed. But they looked like people yeah, who could have just stepped great, out They of get shop. some great, great, you know, college kids to come and do oh, that who really are able to yeah. nail it. I mean, oh, they really, yeah. really Well, I'm fantastic. sure it's competitive. I mean, back when I was had the opportunity, I'm very grateful I did, barbershop singing was, there was no YouTube. It was not popular. It was very... Yeah thought of as old school yeah. but now it's I'm sure very competitive and, and it's also an entryway for people for to get into the entertainment business sure. and get yeah so it's, sure. it's very much a, sure. so I you know I my my wife um, has a nickname for me okay she calls me the noticer okay because I have kind of a hyper awareness of my surroundings and I was so you've I, noticed I, Gene I Roddenberry to, I have to ask about the, the, the Gene yeah. Roddenberry picture that you have there that's my mom about 25 years ago she worked for the March of Dimes, mm-hmm. and uh, they would do a, a gala event every year mm-hmm. um, that was a big fundraiser for the March of Dimes. And Gene Roddenberry was a very generous soul mm-hmm. and was a great supporter of the March of Dimes yep. and was honored by them. And she got to meet with him and to go to his house. That's his house, and that's mm-hmm. his model of the Enterprise mm-hmm. in his study. And... Um, have her picture taken. And of course, I'm a huge Trekkie. And, yeah. And so the cool thing for me was that we did the event, I shouldn't say we, she did the event at Paramount. Mm-hmm. And almost everybody from the Next Generation cast was there. Um, I think LeVar Burton was the one who wasn't. And that would have been right as the show was starting because Broddenberry passed away right. in the second season. Yeah. Yeah. It had just begun. And. Um, um, Patrick Stewart made this. The, it was a greeting. All of them had greetings for Gene, and mm-hmm. and he made it. He made one on film, and he was on the bridge of the Enterprise, and 
you see, he was saying, you know, Gene, you know, what express what I feel about you, but I think I, I must do it in song. And so he stands up and somebody throws him a skimmer and a cane and he starts singing the song, A, you're adorable, you know, going through the alphabet. Yeah. And then he comes around and he's dancing all around and of course he eventually comes to the letter Q. And so he has to say, Q, you know, and do that whole thing. And then he goes right on with the song and he goes to the end and he tosses off the skimmer, tosses off the cane and he sits down and crosses his legs and says, Engage. You know, and it was just, it was, the place was screaming. I mean, everybody yeah, was just, yeah. you know, and that was a great perk just for being her oh, yeah, yeah. to be able yes. to be there and to see them and all talking to Gene and, and, you know, paying tribute to him. And, and he was there and, mm-hmm. you know, obviously was not as physically comfortable as he might be, you mm-hmm. know, not moving as easily as he might, but he was very genial and, and very pleasant and, you know. Yeah, and I'm sure that was a huge, exciting thing. It was very exciting. And I got to go and watch them filming mm-hmm. on one day and walk through the set and yeah. see the little labels on the stuff that said, you know, like Luke Skywalker's bathroom, you know, and stuff. Stuff you cannot see, mm-hmm. you know, from the standard camera angles. But there were all these, like, jokes Cute that were written things. in the actual... If you got up really close to the labels on the compartments, you could see that. And just to be on the set of I, The Next Generation, to be on the bridge. Can, can we just say, though, Patrick... Patrick's, he, he's a vampire. <laughs> he has not aged in it's the last the 40 years at all. Yeah, picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah, it's somewhere in some attic. There's, there's, he, a, he, there's a picture of him looking like... Yeah. You know, no, it's true. I think it's because, you know, there was always that joke about the fact, okay, it's the 24th century and they still can't cure baldness. Yeah. You know, but, but I think because he had no hair when he started, yeah, kind he of hasn't lost his hair. No and so there hasn't, there. you know, there's not that way of sort of gauging someone's aging, you know, and... and he hasn't changed a lot, you know, other than sort of getting more creases on his face. But yeah, you know, he is a vampire. Yeah. He's definitely a vampire. But but um, if you haven't already seen it, there's the, the DVD of the captains. Yeah. Where they all, I mean, that's very, very interesting mm-hmm. to hear them talking to each other about various aspects of... Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fun one. Right. Yeah, I, I grew up on, on original Trek. That was my... Well... I, I remember watching mm-hmm. the, the animated series when it was actually playing for the first time on Saturday morning cartoons mm-hmm. and all that. So, yeah, I was right in the middle of, of that age yeah. group. So, But it's nice, I will tell you that Roddenberry, from my mother's account, is every bit as nice a human being oh, yeah. as I, you I, could. I, I, guess, um, I briefly got to meet Majel Barrett, uh, very briefly, and she seemed the same way. Uh, everyone that I talked to just said she was a gracious and wonderful mm-hmm. Ladies. So. Well, my cool thing is at that event, I got to talk to Patrick Stewart mm-hmm. for about three minutes. Yep. And I had just seen him do his solo version of A Christmas Carol, which yep. was fabulous. And I talked to him about that, and he seemed so grateful to have someone talking to him That's not about something track. about Star Trek <laughs> and something that was obviously very dear to his heart. Yeah. Because he did the whole thing. Yeah. And, you know, it was just a work of love. You know, I mean, I'm sure it was paid. Well, and at the time, at the time, and the first season didn't have. I mean, it had a lot of press, but it wasn't no. the, the juggernaut that no, you know, the track no, no, became no. later. No, so. and if you look at some of those still, first yeah. seasons, they're sort of you know oh, on the edge. Terrible, between, there's some terrible episodes. You know, where, where every time anybody's feeling bad, Troy's hysterical and all this sort of stuff. And so, you know, I mean, they found their footing. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in that captain thing, when Rikers or. Frakes talks about the fact they're all terrified of working with this guy from the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah. And he was, you know, very uncomfortable with them. And they were, you know, just everybody was on eggshells, not mm-hmm. even knowing, you know, <laughs> is he going to think I'm a good enough actor and all this kind of stuff? So, but anyway, um, it, it, uh, it was a great 
experience, and I'm I'm very grateful because of my interest in in Star Trek. So I've had that opportunity, a little yeah. a little glimpse. Yeah, no, it's a great know. it's a great uh, it's a great picture. It's a great it is thing, so, it and is. it's a great story. So it is. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, thank I, you. I think we have been uh, playing email tag for, for about very a year, long time. Uh, and we've had very some some starts and stops. Yes. And uh, but I, I really your doggedness. Well, and that we've taken the time, and it's you know. Uh, I think that as of now, you you hold the record as of uh, this date. Uh, I think you are the uh, person who worked at Disneyland the earliest that we've had in the podcast. Well, that's what I was saying. Looking at the so podcast, I, I thought, you I need to get somebody in there. Well, we've been trying, and we still try to get people from the 60s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would be even. We're yeah. really, because every every person has a different story, sure. and it's it's great for us. So uh, I, I've said this before. If any of you know anyone who has worked at the resort early on, uh, you know, we, we love having the people. Uh, Kyle's a great guy. You love talking have, to him. Have the different perspectives of it. So uh, thanks, everybody. Um, we are continuing our every two-week release schedule. So we've got a lot of um, new episodes and new podcasts coming down the way. Uh, thanks, everyone. Have a uh, Whenever this airs, have a fantastic one, and we'll talk to you soon. Kungaloosh, everyone.